Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, we have a lightning round edition of 321 Go. Then, Adrian Walker of the Boston Globe joins us in studio to talk to our own Shakir Gregory about his work with the 1619 Project. And in two minutes with Tom, Chris Niles steps in to talk about the recent ban on vaping in Massachusetts. First up, 321 Go. Let's talk about something important. Welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker issues a hard stop on all vaping in the Commonwealth. It's a four-month ban on all vaping products in the Commonwealth while health officials study the impact on users. Meanwhile, shockwaves across the cannabis industry and other businesses in Massachusetts. Well discussed. And, oh yeah, that. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi initiates impeachment proceedings against President Donald Trump. It guarantees months of political drama on Capitol Hill on top of what we already have experienced over the past two years. Finally, our own Chris Tracy joins us to talk about this week's Boston City Council elections and the not surprisingly disappointing turnout. Joining me here on 321 Go is Cayenne Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on air. Cayenne, kind of a slow news week. But yeah, I, I mean, just nothing happening. Not whatsoever. a lot going on. It'll give you a whiplash, quite honestly. It will. And by the way, speaking of whiplash, it's the lightning round this week on yes. 321 Go. We've got an amazing interview coming up with Adrian Walker talking about the 1619 Project. So we're going to go a lightning round and go really quickly through these topics. Yep, let's do it. All right. All right, Cayenne, so a uh, public health emergency declared in Massachusetts this week by Governor Charlie Baker, um, and, and, a, and a pretty significant, maybe shocking move on the heels of Walmart and other retailers halting uh, the sale of vaping products. Other stores were considering th that very action, and then boom. That's marijuana and tobacco. Marijuana and, to and, and uh, nicotine, or tobacco-related, whatever. whatever. Um, four months... So the Commonwealth health, Commonwealth health officials can study the impact and policy can be formulated and figure out what's going on because people are getting ill uh, from vaping. But, man, it, 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 it knocks us a leg right out from under the relatively new cannabis industry, particularly um, as recreational adult cannabis uh, sales have gotten up and running. Um, and not to mention the fact that it also impacts convenience stores and other retailers and um but a, a very significant move, um, and, and one that, that others are already following. 24 mm -hmm. hours later, the governor of Rhode Island did the same thing. Uh, what are your thoughts? Um, to your point, there are so many small, a lot of people have come out and said small business owners that are, you know, suffering that do, that this is all they do. Uh, not even for cannabis, just in, in general. Yeah, there's, and, there are some um, sort of non-cannabis vape stores that are, that are, now are saying, wiped out immediately. What do I do Gone. for the next four months? Yeah. Uh, and then what happens after four months is up? Um, we don't know that. We don't know what the – there's a four-month ban right now. We don't know what happens at the end of those four months. While these studies get done and the Department of Public Health and everyone really looks into it, um, it was a bold move. It was. It was. You know, and community by community, 
um, uh, or, or in many communities, local officials, boards of health, many volunteer, uh, sort of not professional staffed, have been trying to create regulations to address the, the, the youth, certainly the youth vaping crisis, with, with at best spotty and in most cases poor results. The town of Harwich uh, uh, instituted some regulations not even a month ago, which essentially uh, creates an opportunity to, to promote, they're trying to control youth vaping. They created uh, a whole category of license to promote uh, uh, vaping and, and create these exclusive vaping shops as a way to, I don't know, somehow stop youths from doing it. Didn't make any sense. It may be better for a centralized process, for a statewide process to address this because communities left to their own devices are not doing a good job, I don't think, in, in, in addressing this. But it goes certainly well beyond that. It goes into the cannabis industry. Uh, there's going to be... You've got doctors, medical Doctors, the medical field, absolutely. Yeah. A lot needs to be studied. So it's a bold move, um, but, but, but it may be one that ultimately leads to a sort of better regulation or, or, or at least a better understanding of what's causing these illnesses. Yeah, it will, I think we'll be talking about this for sure again in four months, if not sooner. Oh, for sure. All right, Kyan. All right, Kyan. So for months, people have been urging House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to initiate, some people, uh, initiate um, impeachment proceedings, the squad. Yeah, lots uh, of calls from her members. Calls from many of her members, and she has been... I wouldn't say reluctant. She has been disciplined. Disciplined. I think that is a very good word. Uh, and, and she, I think at, at different times she referred to the the president will self-impeach, meaning self-implode, meaning worse stuff's going to happen. And sure enough, it has. Um, she's, a, she's, she's a smart lady. She knows what she's doing. Yeah. This, so this is, I, I guess you'd call this the tipping point, the Ukraine scandal um, and, and the conversation he had, he had that was transcribed, that he admitted to. In which he essentially is 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 recruiting the Ukrainian head of state to assist in his own sort of political mission. Now, mm-hmm. there may or may not be legitimate concerns about corruption with the son of Joe Biden. Nonetheless, it, it, it's it, you can't do that. It, it, <laughs> it it appears to me that if you're the president, you should not recruit a head of state to carry out your political agenda. It, it feels wrong. And as even in if like it's not against um, the American way. Even if it's not his political agenda and it was legit you can't you can't do what he did. Even Here's if what we're we know going for to sure. give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I, I think you and I feel the same way. I I, I, I know there's another side to that to, to the equation or the conversation that we're going to be hearing about for months. Um, two sides in the truth. But it will be dry. You know, it's funny. Twice in my lifetime now, there will have been impeachment proceedings initiated. Hadn't happened to, from, since the civil post since the Reconstruction era until the Clinton presidency. Oh yeah, two times in my life. Two times Look in your that. lifetime. It's I've pretty remarkable. And here we go. So it's happening. It is a big gamble. It is absolutely a big gamble because if it's not legit, tied up, and thorough, this is. And if it gets dusted up and banged up at, 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 the, at the in the impeachment hearing at the at the House level, that's I mean that's really problematic. But if if you can't give this thing over to the Senate with real credibility, 
then uh, it, it, it looks it, like a political ploy. It is. It's, yeah. a, it's a big political risk. But uh, I, I genuinely believe that Pelosi felt a duty, a necessity that we now must go forward. Clearly, um, she finally she finally got there. Um, and it, it is. What a what a week. Right. And we're not even through the week yet. Um, it is going to be what we talk about for weeks and months to come. However, this plays itself out. Um, she initiated it this week. It will be very interesting to see what unravels even the next 24 to 48 hours. Every day is going to produce new information about what exactly it is we're getting ourselves into. Agreed. We'll be hearing more about this. I'm looking forward to the insights uh, upon his return from some travel of, of Tom O'Neill on this, yeah. uh, who could speak to this in, a, in very uh, sort of eloquent terms. Looking forward to that. So, yeah. all right, Cayenne. And then up next, I sat down and spoke with Chris Tracy in our office about the Boston City Council elections this week. Hi, Chris Tracy. Hi, Cayenne. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for coming in, our uh, resident expert on all things City of Boston. Um, we had a City Council election this week here in the city. We sure did. I don't know if a lot of people know about it because not a lot of people showed up to vote, which mm -hmm. is always sad. Um, Election turnout was what, right around 11%? Slightly over 11%, that's right. Which is just unfortunate. It's unfortunate at any time. We need people engaged and all of that, and that's a conversation for another day. But mm -hmm. for anyone who doesn't know, there were elections held this week for Boston City Council seats. Mm -hmm. And we're a bit surprised by that low turnout. It's tough to generate buzz around a strictly city council election with no mayoral race or no bigger races going on. Also true. It's not out of the norm. But we have seen the role of a Boston City Councilor change, in large part due to our new Congresswoman, Ayanna Presley. Uh, the council has changed and become um, more of a position where people um, can talk about policy on a bigger level than the city of Boston. It used to be a nuts and bolts, day-to-day -day government uh, elected official. With not as much power, even as it has today, It's a correct? mayoral strong city, for sure. But a, a city councilor can affect residents' lives, and they always say sort of what you see outside of your front door is what a city councilor's ballywick used to be. Councilor Presley and some of the current councilors you're seeing have really used their platform to talk about bigger issues, talk about social issues, uh, and it's an opportunity for them to get a much wider audience um, and, and talk about issues local, statewide, and national. And they are. I mean, many of them really are taking that opportunity to establish a platform for themselves. Um, not even if they necessarily have thoughts beyond the council, but just are saying, like, this is an important seat and I can really do something with it now that I have a voice. I think social media is probably playing a huge part in that because they are able to reach more people than outside of the city or their na respective neighborhood in Absolutely. some cases. Absolutely. So some of the winners and takeaways, what are we looking at? Takeaways we saw are Michelle Wu uh, topped the ticket for at-large with 19%. Behind her, uh, Anissa Sarby-George, then Michael Flaherty. We saw um, Alejandra St. Guillen as the new member in the mix uh, to crack that top four of the at-large seats. As you know, Althea Garrison took Presley's spot, and people had viewed Garrison as vulnerable, and it looks like uh, St. Guillen is in a good shot to get that fourth spot. 
And anyone anyone else you want to give a shout out to before we? Some interesting things we saw in the district races. Uh, we saw in downtown Back Bay, Beacon Hill, Kenzie Bach, who was endorsed by uh, Michelle Wu and a few others on the council, came in strong. And Jen Nassur, who is a Republican, uh, came in second. Out in High Park, Rosendale, Tim McCarthy is vacating his seat. Uh, and his former aide, Maria Farrell, came in second place in the total. And uh, Ricardo, Arroyo, Ricardo Arroyo, whose brother and father served on the council, came in first. Mm-hmm. So that'll be an interesting one to go forward. All right. Well, thanks for keeping us And posted. I'll give one final shout-out, actually. Okay. Craig Cashman, former uh, legislative aide to Mike Moran at the State House, did very well out in Alston Brighton. That'll be an interesting one to watch going forward. All right. Well, thanks for coming in, and you will keep us posted in the next round. Absolutely. Thanks, Kate. That's going to do it for another edition of 321GO. Our program is recorded in Studio 108, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. That's it for 321GO. Up next, an interview with Adrian Walker of the Boston Globe. I'm excited to be joined by Boston Globe Metro columnist Adrian Walker, who has been a consistent voice on issues of race, culture, society, and politics in the Globe for over 20 years. In 2017, Walker, along with six other Globe writers, published an eye-opening spotlight series on race in Boston. Most recently, the New York Times debuted The 1619 Project, a multi-essay look at how slavery, segregation, and race have helped shape America. In light of The 1619 Project's recent release, I wanted to sit down with an expert and get the local perspective. All right. So thank you for joining me, Adrian. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's get right into it. So given your work examining Boston's history with race and Boston's current struggle with race, how do you feel like the 1619 Project reflects on us as a city? Well, let me begin by saying that as someone who spent 33 years in a newsroom, I was absolutely staggered by the 1619 Project. Mm. It was great that they did it. I couldn't believe the breadth of it, the depth of it, how quickly they did it. Mm. I was really uh, overwhelmed by it. what a successful project it was. And one of the things I liked most about it was the way it tried to relate the history of slavery and racism in America to things that are going on today mm-hmm. in terms of issues like housing and politics and other things. And that's really where it relates to a place like Boston. Yeah, I, I, I have to agree with you there. I thought it, the, the, the magnitude of it, you know, they released things like curriculums for teachers to use to integrate that reporting and the, the research that they did in, into schooling, which I thought was really, really fantastic. So, and, uh, you know, this may be inside baseball, but they started on it, they launched it in January, and they were done in September, and that's wow. really fast to do something like this. That's incredible. I didn't know that. Yes. Um, so uh, one of the interesting aspects, you know, kind of speaking more about how um, our history of slavery, racism, and segregation shape our world today, or, or our country today in particular, um, one of my favorite aspects, my little, a little tidbit, was how the traffic on someone's commute was literally shaped by an effort to separate the races, which I thought was like a powerful tidbit. Yes. Um, and so, I, I mean, obviously, you've been working with the Globe for over 20 years, so you know that the traffic in Boston has been bad and is getting worse. <laughs> <laughs> so I would love to speak on that. How well, you know, the traffic you... in Boston would be even worse if the effort to build a highway through the middle of Roxbury hadn't been stopped by Governor Sargent in the early 1970s. So yeah. During an era of urban renewal in which many communities of color were divided mm-hmm. over precisely this issue. Yeah, and things like the uh, the West End, 
yes, in addition. Right. So neighborhoods being toppled, um, divided, and other things is pretty much why we have the traffic that we have today. Yes. It's crazy. Um, so one interesting factoid uh, that I, I read actually, I think, either this morning or yesterday, was that a one in four uh, employees of the life sciences industry would leave Massachusetts if the if they were offered a better commute. So it's it's absolutely hmm. fascinating that actually this, you know, look, given the uh, impact that life sciences has on the Massachusetts economy, it's like for 25% of people to be impacted by something that has such a legacy of discrimination and racism. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that they can't find a better commute, right? Which mm-hmm. tells us that this is not just a Boston problem. That's a fantastic point. <laughs> That's a fantastic <laughs> point. Um, so... Uh, more specifically on the Spotlight uh, series on race in Boston, um, one thing that I thought was particularly powerful and struck out to me the most was the focus on the seaport. And it, it stuck with me, obviously, even two years later, that um, we had this opportunity to build a new neighborhood that was ac- accurately reflecting of the diversity of Boston, and what we got was the seaport. Yes. So do you want to talk a little bit more about you know the construction of that and the reaction to, to some well, of that? Well, it's very interesting. You know, that was the, that's the story, I think, in the entire package that has really stayed with people the most mm. uh, is the story about the seaport. And when we were, you know, we began with this sort of charge of doing a series about race in Boston and the city's race, reputation for racism. Does it still deserve it? Is it outdated or not? That kind of thing. But we had to figure out what specifically the stories would be. Mm-hmm. So we had these, you know, endless meetings every week to, to kick around story ideas. And Andrew Ryan brought in the seaport idea, and, and we all just sat up and said, oh, yeah, let's go do that. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's fascinating that, you know, Boston built this new neighborhood from scratch and it has become this, you know, wealthy white enclave, you know, Mm -hmm. that so many people feel shut out of. And, you know, when you ask people in the city, how did this happen? The response really boils down to we never really thought about it. And, you know, and and a lot of issues about race come down to that, you know, sort of a lack of consciousness, a lack of intentionality, you know, not noticing, not thinking about it. So if, if our series did anything, I hope it made people sit up and think about the things and the decisions they make without thinking. Do you think that um, since the Spotlight story, um, has, have, have you seen any effort to diversify, uh, whether, in, in res- whether in respect to class or race? Without seaport? a doubt, and particularly in terms of developing the seaport, mm-hmm. where there are still major undeveloped parcels, and there's been a very concerted effort mm-hmm. driven by Massport, actually, to... Okay to include developers of color and to make sure those teams are diverse. It's now a big part of the formula in determining who gets to who gets to build the new stuff down there. That's fantastic to hear. Yeah. I'm glad that the um, that you know this has had such an impact. Do you feel like amongst um, individuals and citizens of Boston, do you feel like more people of color feel welcome in the seaport? Or do we still have some, some ways to go there? That's harder to gauge, but clearly we have some we have a ways to go. Mm-hmm. But I think just the consciousness, the awareness that there's a problem yeah. has has helped, you know. Okay. It's made people think about it. That's excellent. Okay. And and I will also say, you know, the seaport is not a finished neighborhood yet. Yeah. So there is still an opportunity to begin to address some of these issues. Let's uh, jump into kind of the role that um, outlets, particularly out with outlets with long histories like the New York Times and the Boston Globe, have in facilitating these conversations and educating people about what's going on. So what role would you say generally should do uh, papers with or established papers like the Times or the Globe have in facilitating these conversations? How can they help? Well, in general, I think of our role as holding up a mirror to a city or to a society mm-hmm. and helping it to examine itself. 
And over time, I think we have gotten much more sensitive and much more conscious, very quite belatedly, mm-hmm. to the need to apply that lens to race, to issues of race. And I think it's one of the things that drove our series and probably one of the things that drove the decision to do 1619 as well. Excellent. Do you feel like there is a... Um that with, with projects like these, do you feel like there's a willingness in newsrooms and among like editorial staff, for example, to talk about how these papers have contributed in other ways or, or facilitated that type, of, um, that type of segregated system or that racist ideology? I can't say that we sit around and endlessly chew over our history and what we could have done better in 1974, mm-hmm. although that wouldn't necessarily be a bad exercise. Mm-hmm. But I will say that, you know, look, I've been to the globe 30 years, and the way we approach stories about race has come a long, long way, particularly in the last decade. We really didn't see, before that, you really didn't see projects like this. We mm-hmm. wrote about race, but much more defensively, mm-hmm. you know, than we do now. That's amazing. Um, so among your readers... Um, rather than you know the the, the writers, um, do you face backlash? Have you experienced backlash from your Spotlight series or anything that you've written in your column? Well, when we were planning the series, we gave this a lot of thought. Mm. You know, we um we dismantled comments on certain stories, so we we thought about do we want to do that, and we ended up kind of coming up with a filtering system, mm-hmm. so it wouldn't get taken over by trolls. We started a Facebook group, but we gave a lot of thought to that mm. and the possibility that that could be taken over. So yeah, we think about it a lot what the reaction would be. I will say, and I've said this many times, that um, one of the surprises to me about our series was how well it was received. Mm. You know, as a person who writes about race in Boston a lot and has for a long time, I expected much more backlash than we actually got. What I found, and it was really refreshing, was that a lot of people really wanted to have the conversation we were trying to start. I've talked to dozens of groups from law firms, advertising agencies, every major college in town, Mm. you know, middle schools, elementary schools, and people kind of want to talk about where we are, how we got here, and where we're going, which is a big change. And I think that one of the things that's happened in Boston is that as the population continues to churn, it's now a city of people who aren't necessarily from Boston, Mm. aren't from Southie, didn't live through busing, and don't come through this stuff with the kind of baggage that previous generations did. So they don't react to these stories as defensively as people once did. Now, I don't want to be a Pollyanna about this. Believe me, when you write about race, you know, it gets the nasty emails going. Mm-hmm. But what I can say is it used to be worse. Great. And I, um, I feel like I'm particularly fascinated by all the work that you did in preparation for the release, you know, the Facebook groups and other types of things to weed out the trolls. Because obviously in the age of social media, people have unprecedented access to you and the globe. So, you know, people use that for for good and for evil. (laughs) Well, we have really smart people who understand all this stuff five times better than I do. And they, (laughs) they had good ideas about how to approach it. Yeah, um, I, I work as a digital strategist here at O'Neill, so I'm always fascinated by you know um, how to deal with that for brands. And so you papers. teach the old people how to use uh, <laughs> how to use uh, Instagram. I don't Is know if it? I could say that, but um, I'm pretty familiar with it. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's really interesting that you know just to have a conversation, which I'm sure we both agree is super critical to us moving forward as a city together, you have to do all of this preparation for the backlash. Yeah, we wanted it to be a positive conversation yeah. that wasn't going to be overtaken. Yeah, but I'm by the backlash. I'm glad it went in that direction. Yeah. And so since um so as you mentioned earlier, since the since the release of it, you've been hearing that there's been kind of a more concerted effort to um to acknowledge our history and do better. Could you like to elaborate more on that? Yeah, I mean, I just think there's an awareness that, you know, we we live in a world where this is a real issue. 
and that it's not really an option anymore to just respond to it all defensively, and that we need to think about where we are and how to move forward. Excellent. And I know um, one other striking um, aspect was that you examined the um, the Boston Olympic uh, Committee, oh, and yes. that there were no uh, there was a room full of white men, and there were no black faces in that room. That's right. And so, um, do you feel like amongst the top power brokers in in the Boston in Boston and the you know Metro Boston as well, do you feel like there has been kind of a change in an effort to diversify their companies and you know get more more inclusive? Yes and no. Uh, politically, I think the power structure is changing a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, you see Ayanna Presley getting elected to Congress. Amazing. That kind of thing. Uh, in terms of the corporate world, I don't see sweeping change mm. at all. Oh. So, Hopefully. so it's a mixed bag. Yeah, so hopefully that picks up, you know. Yeah. Might need to be a follow-up to the Spotlight series sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so speaking of, like, dealing with our past in, in a pro- proactive way, um, I know that uh, Dudley Square has been in the news recently because there's an effort um, that has recently placed uh, renaming Dudley Square on the November ballot. And so this movement, um, just for our listeners, the context, it started after people kind of acknowledged that the former governor of Massachusetts, Thomas Dudley, well, he was governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony back in the 1600s, for which Dudley Square was named. Um, Thomas Dudley and his family were pretty integral um, in establishing and uh, upholding slavery in the in the colony, and so there's a lot of backlash that you know Dudley Square is um, one of the blackest squares um, in the area, and that it's named after someone who helped <laughs> the slave trade continue and the slave economy continue. Yeah. So um, I'm sure you're completely familiar with that. So what are your thoughts on renaming um, you know these different landmarks, squares, and other things um, in acknowledgement of their history? Uh, I take them one one by one. I take them individually. Mm-hmm. Uh, renaming Dudley Square, I think that's fine. I think we can do better than Nubian Square yeah. for the new name. Yeah. Like, yeah. How about Frederick Douglass Square, maybe, or something like that? That's right? fantastic, yeah. But, uh, you know, I w- I wouldn't, it wouldn't bother me to see the Dudley name come up. Okay. But, you know, the problem with Boston, mm-hmm. you, and it's almost unique to Boston as a city that is so consumed and absorbed with its history, mm-hmm. it's like you're going to end up renaming everything. We have three Washington streets. He was a slave owner. Mm-hmm. We got Columbus Avenue. We got, you know, who knows what. And uh, the question is, how far does it go? Mm-hmm. And how much energy do you want to spend on this? Mm-hmm. And those are, those are questions that will, com- that will come up as we deal with these issues one at a time. So do you think in, like, certain situations it would be better to maybe include a plaque or help recontextualize a figure, or do you think that sometimes... Yes, I, th- I think that the real goal should be telling all of our history. Okay. And I think, and this goes right back to the 1619 Project, right? Mm-hmm. Because the real triumph of it is that it, you know, it unearthed this history that, I mean, it's not really buried history, but it's history that a lot of people don't really know. Mm. And, you know, and what we really... James Baldwin used to say that, you know, I don't want black pictures in history books i want american history taught yeah and i think in a way that's where you're tr- that's where i'd like to see us go in a way as well you know um boston is unique in that you know uh both the 1619 project and the spotlight series are you know kind of covering a lot of the same aspects it's like this goes back so far into our history and a lot of the history took place here so right. you- and we don't know anything about who yeah you never think about who dudley was yeah you could walk through dudley square for 50 years and never say Who's Dudley? It's actually named after a couple of Dudleys oh. who were related. Interesting. There were a couple of governors, Dudley. 
That is fascinating. Well, I did, definitely didn't know that, so I'm learning more about our history, like even in this conversation. So um, I'd say, finally, um, what do you look forward to in terms of how conversations about race and perhaps your work will evolve going forward? What do you look forward to most? I look forward to us beginning to have this conversation that we are slowly, fitfully, finally beginning to have hmm. about what our history really is and how it is shaped who we are today. You know, and I think that we are in the very early stages of having that conversation and learning how to have it. And we just got to continue to push forward. Are you encouraged by things like the 1619 Project? Oh, enormously. Yes, absolutely. And I will say generally that, you know, I said to a journalism class a few months ago, there's never been a better time to be a black or brown journalist than right now, in the sense that there is more willingness to tell these stories than there used to be. And for Two Minutes with Tom this week, we are joined by Vice President Chris Niles. Welcome, Chris. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Stepping happy be, in. Happy to be here. Big shoes. Do you think you're ready? I think so. So we thought that we should take some time this week to talk about there's a lot of big news that happened this week. But in Massachusetts, the biggest news is the fact that Governor Baker declared a four-month ban on all vaping products here in the Commonwealth. Um, what exactly does that entail? Uh, who's included? ramifications you can just kind of run through it yeah so, so this comes on the heels of, of what really is a, a national crisis at this point um, in Massachusetts uh, the Department of Public Health had uh, collected data from from local health providers and they've now documented well over 60 cases of uh, lung illnesses associated with vaping products and what was it in what time frame do we know uh, I'm not sure exactly the time frame, but it, it's been over the last few months that they've they've been you know certainly tracking this, and this has really come come to a head. Uh, so the so the ban is in effect until Janu- January 25th, 2020, uh, and includes uh, nicotine products, uh, cannabis products notably, um, and the the uh, technology associated with 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 vaping. Uh, so obviously, vaping is very new, um, and this and this, very popular, very new, very popular. And um, also uh, is is becoming increasingly controversial, um, and particularly among um, youth uh, youth consumption of, of vaping products is is, is certainly something that um, that parents and legislators and, and certainly officials in the, the Baker administration are, are concerned about. Um, but but this you know this gives uh, the the uh, Baker administration and the legislature four months to try to get get um, some permanent guidance uh, around what what. Um, what the best path forward is and, and how to keep the public safe and healthy. And around the youth issue, so for people who may not know, vaping comes, you have cartridges, there's all these different flavors, which one would argue is geared towards youth in some ways. Um, and the four months is really intended to get more information, right? Talk to more people, gather and figure how can we do this responsibly? Uh, because there are, on the flip side of this, a lot of small businesses that are now potentially going to suffer at least over the course of the next four months that are strictly vape shops that can no longer sell their product. Yeah, and, and I th- you know, the governor's comments this week, they they knew going into this that there was going to be uh, obviously an economic uh, impact. And um, but, you know, given the, the, the public health concerns, they, they uh, decided to go in this direction. Massachusetts ban is 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 um, probably one of the, the more broad 
and sweeping bans that that we've seen in in, in different states, particularly uh, the, you know the cannabis industry being included in that uh, is something that um, is is notable as those vaping products are licensed and regulated. So that is something that um, is is uh, certainly a, from a policy perspective is 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 a little bit more controversial than some of the actions that other states have taken. Um, I think the you know the other the other interesting thing to watch here is the difference between what has been regulated and non-regulated. So a lot of the cases that have the that have been reported to the CDC thus far have been um, the these the the common thread has been these cutting agents, um, so particularly like the black market products. E- exactly what what these cartridges where these cartridges originate are they are they being imported from China are they what what the supply chain looks like, and also what is actually in these cartridges um, that have lot, lots of them have been illicitly uh, created and include um, different cutting agents to, to uh, create different flavors and different um, textures. And that, that seems to be the focus of the investigation thus far, particularly vitamin E acetate is, is one thing that, that people are looking at into uh, pretty extensively. So um, as we get to know more about the um, medical kind of causation, I think we'll see more of a, a fine, finer point on regulations and, and legislation going forward. Because there are companies who are doing this for lack of responsibly, right, who are very straightforward, who their, their products are as clean and, and responsibly, you know, produced that are probably not the cause of what it is we're looking at. Yeah, and particularly on the on the cannabis side of the equation, the Cannabis Control Commission um, in the last few weeks has has come out with some further guidance for for product manufacturers um, to include uh, further transparency about what is included in these cartridges that they are manufacturing. So on on that side of it, it is uh, there's more accountability, and there are there's a, a regulatory process and um, a, a little bit more of a, a, a government hand in what's happening. Um, the illicit market, where we've seen a lot more, uh, the a lot more of the the cases pop up, is is seems to be the the source of a lot of this. And we would be remiss. So after Governor Baker declared his ban on Tuesday, the following day, Rhode Island declared a ban. Uh, I believe now Connecticut and New York are in discussions about what they're going to do, uh, and then the legislature, the House, released a bill. Um, so everyone's kind of looking at this from a multitude of different directions, not just here. Yeah, the fe- and the federal government had had taken steps um, on on the flavored uh, the flavored tobacco in particular, and that was the the, the crux of the vehicle that um, the House uh, that the the Committee on Public Health uh, released uh, yesterday had to do with with flavored tobacco products. But I think you know we'll see more over the next next few months, certainly about what that um, if there's a more comprehensive approach um, to this industry and, and provide a little more consumer certainty about what these products actually uh, contain. So a lot happening, more to come. Absolutely. You will have to come back and keep us posted. Absolutely, <laughs> happy, happy to come back. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Now, don't forget to subscribe on whatever your favorite listening platform may be. You can also check us out on our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.